0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like what you hear, please press subscribe. And also, if you could leave a review and rate this podcast, that would be amazing. Um, Thank you to the many of you who have already done that. It means so much to me, and I read every comment. So please review, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much to Riley Versa. For sponsoring today's podcast, Riley Versa is a woman owned line of bags created with the idea that one bag can really have it all. Riley Versa's interchangeable covers, pouches, and straps allow you to be boldly versatile. Get it? Versa? Riley Versa? Versatile with your fashion choices at all times. With one seamless switch, you can transform your bag into a completely new one in seconds. Riley Versa makes an amazing baby bag, too, with two colored, removable pouches, a detachable bag that allows it to be crossbody or backpack, and spill-proof interior lining. Mental note, this is a great baby gift. They also offer DIY customization and hand-painted customization. In fact, a friend of mine gave me one of these bags, and it is really awesome, and I love it, and my kids are fighting for all the little pieces that go inside. Anyway, Riley Versa is offering a special gift with purchase at checkout with code Zibby. So go check out um, Riley, R I L E Y V E R S A dot com, Riley Versa. Check out with code Zibby for your special gift. I had the most fun ever. Laughing and talking to Kevin Kwan, who is the author of Crazy Rich Asians, the international best-selling novel that has been translated into more than 30 languages. Its sequel, China Rich Girlfriend, was released in 2015, and Rich People Problems, the final book in the trilogy, followed in 2017. For several weeks in 2018, the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy commanded the top three positions of the New York Times bestseller list in almost unprecedented single author trifecta, and the film adaptation of Crazy Rich Asians became Hollywood's highest-grossing romantic comedy in over a decade. I saw it. It was so good. I don't know if you've seen it. Go see it. It's so funny. In 2018, Kevin was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. His latest book is called Sex and Vanity. I hope you enjoy our conversation And by the way, in parentheses, well, I'm not even going to tell you my schools, but think about what your schools say about you. And you can imagine putting yourself in our conversation. Well, welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This is such a treat.
1: It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: So congratulations. Your next book, Sex and Vanity, is coming out. Are you excited? Do you still get excited after you've had like three amazing bestsellers? Or or does the excitement die down over time or not really?
1: No, I I really do get excited because, you know, each book is like a new baby. And like, why wouldn't you be excited about a new baby? You know what I mean? It's like you really want to birth it and, and make sure it gets the right start in life, right?
0: <laughs> is, is this not the right time to tell you about how I felt when I was about to have my fourth child? But no, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe people will, you know, different people might feel differently. But yeah. For me, it's a, it's a very exciting time. You just never know, right? It's like, it's like are people bored of reading my books? Are they going to care? Will they want to read it? What will they think? It's, so it's, it's, it's very fraught and very exciting and very stressful all at the same time.
0: Wow. You know, it's so funny because I'm sure people would just assume that you wouldn't be nervous at all. Right. And yet you're just a human being like everybody else. You know, like I think that's one thing is that as readers, we assume that authors have all this confidence and that every book that comes out will just naturally be a success. But I think that the authors are just so worried about it all the time. It's, 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 it's continually a surprise to me.
1: Maybe it's just me, but like, I, I feel like everything is an experiment and you just never know like what people will think. And and this book, especially like I've gone out on a limb to do something different. And I, and I hope re- readers will come along with me on this ride. You know, it's, it's quite different from my last three books, but hopefully no less fun.
0: I thought this book was super fun, and I am so appreciative that you essentially whisked me off to Capri for the <laughs> time I was reading it out of the confinement of, you know, the quarantine-ish situation. So I thought it was great. I thought it was great.
1: Yay. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's I It's so great to actually also be talking to someone that I actually read the book. Yes. You'd be amazed.
0: <laughs> no, like I read person. the book. I appreciated all <laughs> yeah. the details and... All the rest of it. And I wish I could meet somebody who would offer up their hotel room to me next time I get a terrible room in a hotel. And all I mean, the rest.
1: you yeah. never know, right? Hope springs eternal. You know, yeah, you, you never, never know. know. You never know. We'll see
0: what happens. Just where do I
1: <laughs> wear the right hat and it'll happen yeah, yeah.
0: exactly <laughs> I also just every time you so whenever you introduce a character you put a parentheses their entire educational background and that just did not get old I thought that was so clever and funny and just like so par for the course you know my husband sort of entered into this world from Florida and he's he was like, why does everybody immediately ask and explain why everybody else went to school? He's like, that was like not a question that we asked growing up. Nobody cared. And here, anyone you meet at a party is like, oh yeah, well, where'd you go to college? Where'd you go to business school? Where'd you do this? And he was like, what is going
1: on? Bingo. This is exactly why I did that. Because, like, I grew up in in suburban Texas, and maybe it was just my friends, or like, we were like the most low achieving people you could possibly imagine. Like, (laughs) our our dream was like to get into like the state school. You know what I mean? So, fast forward like 10 years later, I'm in New York, and everyone is just obsessed with their schools. You know, not just their colleges, it goes back to their kindergarten especially, you know, this particular breed of New Yorkers, you know, I would, that grew I up would on actually, the upper right side.
0: I would say preschool counts too. I wouldn't discount preschool. Yeah, definitely.
1: Preschool. Yeah. And even like your mom, like which, which like class she went to for like her mamas or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it, it dates back as, as early as you can possibly date. And so it was always, you know, like snobbery fascinates me in all shapes and forms. So like, I remember, you know, one of my first jobs, like my coworkers, like, what school did you go to? You know, like, and I'm so proud to have gone to a state school. Like, I thought I got a great education, a quality education. And I would, I would like proudly say that. And they were just, the looks on their faces, it was like so unfathomable to them. <laughs> that I didn't go to like an Ivy League or like one of the cool colleges on the East Coast. So I just felt this was a really fun way to like capture that snobbery of this, that social group, number one. But I think also I play this game where like, if, if you know these schools, if you know these, this world, just even in that parenthesis, you can you can see someone's whole life story in just those four schools, right? Totally, totally. So, and then sometimes you would go, "Oh, wait, what happened there? Why did she go from this really prestigious prep school to this college?" Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> you know, like what happened? Yeah. You know, and then she did this. You know, so I really played this game, and and you know, to me, it's it's yet another layer that hopefully lends more richness to each character.
0: No, it's so. It was so. It was just such a. Perfect, like Cliff Notes version of, of character description. <laughs> it was great. Thank you. And I read, there was a quote you had about snobbery, actually, in your recent piece in The Atlantic about the social codes of the very rich. And you said, you've always had a lifelong fascination with snobbery, that strange, sometimes tragic, often funny dance people take part in to prove they're richer or smarter or better stationed than someone else. <laughs> So, tell me a little more about when this sort of interest in snobbery started. I've heard you described yourself as a total observer at times. So, tell me about where that came from.
1: I mean, it really began in grade school. So, I, I, I grew up the first 11 years of my life in Singapore, and I went to, I did not know because I didn't, you know, enroll myself there. My parents put me there, <laughs> apologizing, <laughs> you know, preemptively. I went to this, this, this school called ACS which was like the snobbiest school in Singapore, you know, it, and I was known that all the snobs went there and I didn't know that I was going to be classified as these little snobs. But when I got there, you know, and I really realized how quickly, like there were certain kids that were like the alpha kids. Right. And even the teachers would candid to them, you know, like even to the point where it's like, I would raise my hand to answer a question. No one would ever let me answer a question because I wasn't, I wasn't special enough. Right there were like four anointed boys that would get to answer every question and prove their brilliance. And, it's the, and these four boys came from these key families that were like household names on the island. So it was so interesting to really start to realize that at age six, like, ah, I see what's going on here. And, and then you start to see the kids' behaviors. And so it, was just, it just sort of was kind of, I don't know, it was fascinating because I, it was so different from how I was at that point raised, like I, 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 my, my father was the most unpretentious person you'd ever meet. And his father was an extremely, extremely humble man. And so I didn't have this type of energy in my life. So to see it for the first time, and then to see it kind of blow up, even, and get worse and worse and worse year by year, because I guess this was in in the early eighties in Singapore, you know, where the country was truly like prospering by leaps and bounds every year. And so you would see it in like real time, you know, like which kids got invited to the special birthday party and I'd never got invited you know, to anything, right? I'm <laughs> sorry. Like a, no, it's totally fine. Like I didn't care. Like I didn't, I was, you know, when you're six years old or you're seven years old, like It didn't matter. Like, I had my whole life. I had my friends. I had my neighborhood. You know, like, I didn't care if I didn't get invited to some random kid's birthday party. But I would hear about it come Monday. Like, oh, my God. We went to, like, so-and-so's house. And there were all these Roman statues all over the grounds of this enormous mansion. You know what I mean? So I would hear these stories. And, you know, and then suddenly you would see the teachers begin to suck up to this kid that before was just this lovely little kid. He was actually my friend. But suddenly the teachers all heard about the Roman statues. (laughs) <laughs> you know, on the grounds of his house. And like, suddenly he got special treatment. So it was, it, was, it was interesting. And then, you know, coming from that and being plopped down, you know, at age 11 to just a normal American middle school was such a shock to the system. I bet. But I also noticed, you know, in this school, like there was a kid who was popular and I, don't, I didn't really understand why he was popular. He was, you know, nice enough, but like he almost had this mystique around him. Everyone was like, oh my God, this kid, this kid, this kid. And I found out that, you know, back in grade school, his mom drove a Maserati.
0: And that's all it took.
1: And that's what he's known for. (laughs) Or at that time, that was what he was known for. This is the kid whose mom drove a Maserati. (laughs) You know, so it was sort of fascinating to me. From an early age. and then
0: yeah. It's funny how in Singapore, like the thing that gets the attention are, are random statues. And yet when you go to Texas, it's all about the cars and, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. different cultures. I feel like you should probably write a thank you note to those four boys, though, from your first school to thank them. Because maybe without them, you wouldn't have written all this stuff and become like this massive success. So maybe you deserve <laughs> some uh, thanks for their outrageous lifestyles.
1: Yeah, I wish I could remember their names. I really (laughs) would love to get back in touch with some of those kids and see, you know, where are they now? But I just like I I left when I was 11. And sadly, there was like really, I only kept in touch with like one kid, like my one best friend. Yeah. (laughs) And the rest just kind of fell by the wayside. And yeah.
0: And it's so funny, because I read that you said about yourself that you're not a creative person. So tell me about that, because I would argue that you are a creative person, even though obviously I don't even know you, but just having read your books, like, why do you think you're not creative? Like, you think that all the material just sort of fell from the heavens type of thing.
1: <laughs> I really think that as a writer, right, there, there are some people who can just dream up worlds, you know, like people who write sci-fi or fantasy books. And even some novelists can really, especially if they write write period pieces set in like 16th century France or whatever, there's a pure imagination that I just don't have. You know, my stories all really come from a place of observation. If I can't see it, if I haven't been in the story, haven't witnessed the situation, I can't write about it. I can't just make up a character from nothing. Just like I can't make up a situation from nothing, I'm, I'm intensely visual, and so so much of it comes from my visual memory. So in that sense, I feel like I, 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 I'm not a pure creator. Mm-hmm. I'm really someone who just remembers and who's observed, and I'm, I'm resetting it on the page and retelling what I've seen.
0: So does this mean you've gone to a wedding like the one you wrote about in *Sex and Vanity*, like the, the, whole, a- the whole week of activities and and you know, company yeah, dress codes and everything? Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, it wasn't that wedding per se, you know, but I've been to, I've been to weddings like that. And so I was able to use the, that departure point and, and really kind of restyle and, and make it even more over the top in, in this book.
2: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: And how did you pick that? You've obviously been in lots of different outrageous, awesome situations that could, you could have written about. Why did you pick this format and, and a wedding like this and these particular characters? Like, how did you arrive at that?
1: Well, interestingly, I mean, with, with this wedding in particular in Capri, it takes place at Villa Lysis, which is one of the most beautiful villas on the planet. And it's not a public museum, you know, so like I've been there several times. And even my first time going to Villa Lysis and visiting it, the setting is so spectacular. And I was like, whoa, this would be a great spot for like a party or a wedding. So already I lodged that in my head. You know, this is a book that I've been writing in my mind for like 10 years, right? Every time I would go to Capri, I would collect places, I would collect situations and I'd be like, how can I weave this into my story? So definitely being there, being at this beautiful villa I could see, I could just see a whole wedding take place there. And then a few years later, I made a new friend and she got married to Bill Lysa. Hmm. She literally had the wedding for dreams there. And it was photographed in Vogue. You can Google it. You know, you just Google Bill Lysa's wedding. You will see her amazing, beautiful wedding. It's gorgeous what she did and how she transformed the palace. You know, so that, so that was another inspiration point seeing, oh, wow, like she really made it happen. and I think in her case, she also um, helped to pay for a lot of the restoration of the place, which is really great. They were able to build like new structures on the property and stuff like that, you know. And, you know, so that was another inspiration point, seeing a, a real wedding happen there, you know, unfold in these beautiful pictures. And then using that and using many other weddings I've been to, I kind of cobbled together my sort of dream wedding for this couple. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes. So, like, I art directed this wedding out of so many different inspiration points.
0: I have now Googled and I'm looking at all the pictures of the wedding at Phil Lysis <laughs> while we're I mean, talking. Are they it not? It's unbelievable. Are they not, oh my gosh. It's
1: unbelievable. And it's, you know, she did it in such a classy way. You know what I mean? Like, yep. it's, it was so intimate, so full of love, and it's over the top, but it's still just exquisite. Oh you know, gosh.
0: well, this is this is, is now awesome. on my on yeah. my wish list is to find somebody I know who will get married here and invite me.
1: <laughs> I'll have to. <laughs> me too. Or as I told my father, I wish I could like get in a time machine and we would have met like two years earlier and then I would have been invited to your wedding. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know,
0: maybe my kids. So. Maybe I can start campaigning for a destination yeah. wedding here. I've only got now. you know thirty yeah. years to work on it. So.
1: <laughs> totally. Yeah. But yeah, so it's a beautiful fantasy spot. And, you know, like with all my books, I'm trying to transport people and just give them a really fun ride, you know, into a world that's just fantastical and yet rooted enough and grounded enough in reality where they can actually relate.
0: So it's this whole funny thing in society right now, I feel like, because there's so much anti-wealth sentiment, right? Everybody in every article is just like, down with the wealth! Like it's like you know a crime to be a wealthy person, and yet there is obviously this enormous fascination, right? The proof is in the pudding of you're selling like a bazillion copies of your books because people want a piece of it, so they want to see it, and yet they have to publicly discount it. I don't know. What do you make of that whole thing?
1: I think there's a fascination and a revulsion because I I also see like you know I, I get comments on on my you know Instagram and and I I see some people they're like. We love the story, but like, we wish the people weren't so wealthy, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, do you really? I mean, would you actually be interested in reading about them if they were just like crazy middle-class Asians? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) that's a whole other book. You know what I mean? Like, and that's very valid, absolutely. But I think since the beginning of time, people have been fascinated by, I think, power and the people who are at the top of the pyramid, beginning with the pharaoh. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Beginning of stories of the Pharaoh that was passed down through gossip, to stories in the Bible about the rich and powerful, to Machiavelli, to to Shakespeare. You know, even during the Spanish flu, people were reading Edith Wharton's books and Henry James's books, and sort of escaping into these worlds. And I think what also is important is that I think for people who are not in that one percent. It's kind of gratifying to see that, you know, these rich people have problems too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There is a universality to experience. It brings them down, to to bring down these characters, to to, to have to reckon with the fates and to have to experience the tragedies and the dramas of their lives. So I I think people are always riveted, Mm -hmm. you know, by that. You know, certainly in my books, like I, I go to great lengths. I'm not glorifying the wealth, you know, I'm just portraying it as I see it. And I'm also revealing that in these worlds, there are decent people who understand and who realize that they're extremely privileged in a, in, a, in a world that's completely full of inequality and who are trying to make a difference.
0: So really, you're doing a public service. You're like helping out <laughs> a whole group of people. <laughs> it's very nice of you. <laughs> Making people more relatable uh, and everything. It's I, perfect. I don't
1: know if you can say that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. And I think especially with sex and vanity, you know, like, in Crazy Rich Asians, I really doubled down on like the, the lavish descriptions and the brand name dropping and all of that because that to me captured how these people really are. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's it's interesting because like I would I would go to Hong Kong and I would, I would meet friends and visit relatives and everyone is just name dropping, brand name dropping a mile a minute. And they're fascinated by like, oh, what are you wearing? Who made your shoes? Who made your watch? You know, like stuff that would never come up in a conversation in the United States. Mm -hmm. it is a cultural difference over there. It's not seen as rude to ask like, oh, who made your shirt and how much you pay for it? You know what I mean? So I wanted to really accurately portray that world. And it's satire, you know, and making fun of these people. That's what, you you know, a lot of people fail to like remember. And in this new series, it's, it's, they do come from privilege, but that's sort of beside the point in many ways. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, you know, I, I, I hope you agree. You know, it's it's you know, Lucy isn't driven by money in any way, shape, or shape or form. Like she's got other issues she's dealing with.
0: Yes. It's just a backdrop. It's just like one character element, essentially. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's not her defining element, as it no. is for some people. You exactly. know, like Eddie in my crazy rotation series. He's completely defined by his status symbols and, and his position and his wealth and his, you know, average net worth every day. Well I whereas think- Lucy and George and, and you know, some of the other characters in this book, it, they're, they're totally, have completely different values. Right. and maybe That's reflective of where they come from.
0: And maybe there's more of a relatability factor in that, in that they have, you know, normal thoughts and feelings, and maybe it's easier almost to put yourself in their shoes and feel like you're living this life.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. everything was great, but... <laughs> I mean, were you sympathetic to their plight?
0: Oh... <sighs> Did you want me to be? Did you want me to be? No, yes, I am sympathetic to their flakes. I mean, I don't have anything against any groups of people. I mean, you can't help the family you're born into. And there are wonderful people who have all different levels of wealth. And I think that any issues you're having are your own issues to deal with. And just because you might be more privileged in some ways than others doesn't mean the pain is any less. Like the pain Mm -hmm. of grief or loss and, I don't know, I mean— it doesn't matter what you have. It Love and loss and connection, that's all the same stuff. The outside is just the, the backdrop for it, in a way. But anyway, that's my own two cents. <laughs> I,
1: I, I absolutely agree. And I think actually wealth amplifies that and, and a lot of times complicates and makes things worse.
0: It can, yeah. You're totally for, right. For people.
1: It can, yep. you know.
0: Well, especially because people assume if you are wealthy that nothing should be bothering you ever. And that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Right, is it? Your characters have things bother them.
1: They sure do. <laughs> otherwise, it wouldn't be interesting. Exactly. Why would you be reading? Right, right?
0: totally, yeah. exactly. Tell me a little more about your writing process. Like, did, how much of this book do you have outlined? I love how you did it by, you know, the place of all the events and all of that. Like, do you have all of that thought out before you start writing? Or does it happen as you go? How, what's your process like? It's
1: totally, I'm like the messiest, most haphazard writer you, you can possibly meet. So it's like I'm handling this big muddy block and I'm slowly just chipping away at it, you know, Mm -hmm. until it becomes something that I want to look at. So I don't really outline at all. I have an idea and I write actually chronologically, you know, so it just keeps building. I I can't skip from chapter to chapter. I can't write, you know, something three, three chapters down. So I really tell the story as it evolves. And the characters really, you know, once I set an idea, the characters really take over and the dialogue that comes out and the situations that happen, like, because I write so quickly, you know, I almost in like a trance state when I write, Hmm. you know, I always write. It's just sort of, I I let it all come out. And then the next morning I'll go back and read it. And like, every day I I, I go back and I go, wait a minute, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, who wrote this? I, I really see that in many, many of my chapters and scenes, you know, especially with the crazier characters like, you know, that, that will express themselves. It's like I don't know where this came from, but okay, let's go with it because this now changes the situation, right? And let's just go there. So I'm very, very experimental and haphazard and in, in what I do. And I kind of I can't imagine writing an outline and being like having to commit to like a structure. That's just not how I work.
0: So how long did this book take to write?
1: It actually only took four months. Wow. This fast. is the fastest book I've, I've, I've written. And I think a lot of it was because I, I was really, I was sort of, I was given a break in between a TV project to, to really like have some time to write a novel. So I was, I really wanted to maximize the time. This was all pre-COVID had I known that, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know. This would happen. I would have been like, "Give me a year and <laughs> let me do half of this while I'm socially isolating." But you know, it worked out the way it did. And
0: no, it's.
1: I'm, 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 I'm totally glad. I yeah.
0: Sometimes too much time can be, you know, sort of a devil you have to work against as well. I feel like if you get, you know, it's like that whole expression: "Give a busy person something to do, and you'll get it done." <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah.
1: No. Absolutely. It's absolutely. So it, it it you know it happened when it had to happen, and I'm I'm really. I was worried at first I wouldn't have enough time and it would be haphazard, too haphazard, and it ended up being, you know, just exactly right. And I like turned in my final draft right before we all went under lockdown, and I'm glad I did because I don't know if I would be able to channel that kind of joy, <laughs> you know, yep. in these times, you know, like I think if I was still writing it when we went into lockdown and when the pandemic was, was, was happening, it would probably have a very different ending. <laughs> It'd probably be a lot darker, you know, because you are affected by by what, what's happening in the world.
0: But now we need the joy in this book more than ever. I mean, it could not be more welcome than than the, a more welcome sort of distraction from the current state of the world. It's like the perfect antidote at this exact moment. I,
1: so. I, I really hope so. I really hope so. That's really kind of all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to heal through laughter.
0: That's awesome. I love that. It's about you,
1: medicine, as they say.
0: <laughs> are you already working on another book, or no? Sounds like no, but you, so must, you must be. The
1: minute I finished, the minute I finished the, and handed in the manuscript, I could start back on on this T D series that I've been developing. So I'm back in TV land writing a script every day. Wow. And it's a whole different process because it's collaborative. You know, I'm I'm working with a whole team of writers. So that's the new adventure for for the moment.
0: Well, That's exciting. Very cool. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
1: I always say, like, you really, don't be afraid to, like, really take a chance and let your freak flag fly. (laughs) seriously, because that's what I I did. You know, I I wrote a book called Creates Rich about these crazy people. And I wrote stuff that I in, in my normal life would never write, you know, even as, as someone who studied writing, creative writing, like I used to write these very composed, very kind of minimalist essays and poems and stuff like that. And like here, this is just this crazy mess of a book that just, I think people really respond to because I was able to, uh, you know, to really tap into this very authentic weirdo that's in me. <laughs> that if I tried to overcraft it, you know what I mean? If I tried to turn in like too polished a thing that appealed to a certain demographic or, you know, like I think a lot of times people try to write what they think other people want to read. And I think that's really, really self-destructive, you know, just write for yourself. Write and express your real voice and your real story. Tell it like you want to tell it, and don't think about how it's going to be received. Because I, I really didn't, you know, I didn't intend for my book to even be published. Hmm. I was just going to write them and like self-publish and share them with a few friends and that know me well. So like, I felt like I was in a safe space, and I could really go there and like write these strange stories that have nothing to do with my everyday life. And then look what happened. <laughs> oh, look what happened. Yeah. So I just that's my encouragement to people. Like you know. Dare to be original, you know, and dare to tell the truth, your own truth.
0: I love it. Well, Kevin, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. And that was so fun.
1: (laughs) This was really, really so fun. And I I do find, you know, I I hope everyone's doing well and people will find a little bit of, you know, peace and calm from reading, whether it's my books or someone else's books. I know I've been reading more than I ever have read in the last four months. I'm reading a lot more fiction because I need that escape too. Totally. You know.
0: <laughs> Me too. I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> totally.
1: You know, I have to like you know, now I have to like ration my news every day so I don't get too mad in the mornings. And then I go to go to sleep every night reading it's like a good piece of fiction.
0: Totally. That's the recipe for uh, surviving these times.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well awesome. best of luck.
0: You too. And
1: thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. A lot of fun. I appreciate it. Okay. okay. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Riley Versa for sponsoring today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.